But I want to start uh, this morning as we talk about um, uh, Jesus uh, raising from the dead. Oh, by the way, by the way, I meant to start here and I didn't. He is risen. All right, very good. You, you guys know exactly what's up. So if, you have, if you've never done this before, I say he is risen. You say he is risen indeed. Let's give everyone a shot at it. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Mm, it's the best. It's the best. You got to get those in because you can only do it once a year. So you got to get it in. Um, so I want to start this morning. As we talk about the resurrected Lord, we, we're talking about him, um, you know, going from death to life. And I want to start uh, the opposite about me, uh, more from life closer to the grave. Okay, that sounds really, it's a joke, so don't, uh, I'm fine, you guys. I feel like I set that up really weird. Um, but I did, I did, I don't mind telling you, about a year and a half ago, I turned 40, and, um, and so, you know, I'm on, I'm on, they call it over the hill for a reason, okay? There's a downward slope here. And, um, and so for me, 40 was no big deal. It was like, you know, just, it's another year, I feel great, I feel fine, or whatever. But then somewhere, like, around my 40th birthday, um, I heard someone use the phrase middle age, and I thought, huh, I wonder, like, is this now? Or like, is that a little, you know? So I, like any wise person, I took it to social media and I just said, hey, I'm 40. Does that make me middle-aged? And uh, the results were not encouraging. Um, uh, so everyone's like, well, it depends on how you define it, right? But uh, most definitions, right? So um, halfway done with life or thereabouts, yeah, that checks out. Uh, average lifespan-wise, that checks out. Um, I went bald a few years back. So uh, well, I, I should say, I acknowledged that I was going bald a few years back and then did the haircut. Um, I got glasses a few years ago. And so kind of any metric that you use, I'm middle-aged. What, what this means is um, I'm extremely relatable, okay? So if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're on the younger side of things, I still get you, you know? Like we can still connect. And I understand like, those, you're, like any younger person here is like, the very fact that you said that means you have no idea who I am. And it's probably true. <laughs> Um, I also get along great with the older generations and all that kind of stuff, so I'm kind of in between. And this morning, what I want to do is we kind of uh, hit this, uh, this momentous occasion of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. I want to start by talking about two Johns. There's an old John and there's a young John, um, and they're the same John. It's the, it's the apostle John who followed Jesus around. I'm going I'm to share a story from the life of young John, and then we're going to hear some teaching from the life of old John. And the thing that connects these two stories is the thing that happens in between the two stories, which is this. Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died uh, for our sins to heal us, to forgive us, to reconcile us to God. And in doing that, he was put into the tomb um, all day on Saturday, after Good Friday, all day in the tomb on Saturday. And then on Easter Sunday, Jesus resurrected, came out in new life. And this event that we're celebrating this morning, the resurrection of Jesus, makes all the difference in the world uh, for John, and it should for us as well. Uh, we're talking this morning about love and fear, and, um, and, the, and the, the, the interrelation of these two things that are so important, because I think that fear uh, drives so much of who we are and what we do. Fear is huge, I would argue, for all of us. Now, some of you are very brave. I totally get that. Um, but I'm saying that every one of us has these fears that lead to insecurities, that lead to um, character flaws, and it leads to the ways that we behave and the ways that we interact, and we, we are so many ways in our lives. We're burdened by, and in many cases, enslaved by the fears that we have. So as we start, and as I get ready to share this first story of a young John, I'm just going to ask you, what are you afraid of? What in your life are you afraid of? And we'll keep coming back to that as we go. Now, I'm going to start in Luke chapter 8, and here's, uh, here's John, the apostle John, with the other disciples, and they're with Jesus in a boat. And so here's how the story begins. 
one day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Pause there. You can see the, like, it starts nice. They're sailing, and Jesus falls asleep. Nice day on the lake, right? But here's, like, this whole thing comes down, and it gets more intense. There's a windstorm coming down. So you're already in a boat, which is a pretty vulnerable place to be. And then the windstorm comes, and lest we think that, like, they're making too big of a deal of this, Luke is telling us, yeah, like, the boat was filling up with water, okay? That's not good. If you're in a boat, you don't want that thing filling up with water. And it says, like, as, as Luke is taking these eyewitness accounts of what happened, it says that they, uh, they were filling with water and they were in danger. Like it objectively says that they were in danger, okay? And then they go and they wake up Jesus and, um, and they tell Jesus like, wake up, wake up, we're perishing, like we're dying. So these, these guys literally feel like they're in this boat and they really think we are about to die, okay? So here's fear speaking to this whole thing. Now, Jesus' response is always like just a little bit like not as encouraging as you want it to be. The whole like chicken soup for the soul thing, I don't think Jesus was that into it um, because he never quite sympathizes with where they're at. So this is what it says in the next couple of verses here. Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? Now that is... um, beautiful and amazing and powerful. It is not um, super encouraging to the disciples as they're there, but picture the scene. They literally think they're dying. The boat's filling up with water. The storm is going nuts. Jesus wakes up, okay, and Jesus is just sitting there, and first he he wakes up, sees what's going on, speaks to the storm and gets it to stop, and then there's this like eerie calm over the whole thing, and Jesus has just demonstrated power, like this massive flex over creation itself, and then Jesus says like, where is your faith? Now, I, I don't know the lack of faith that Jesus saw in them. I, I do tend to think that, like, if you're in the storm and you're, like, waited until you're, like, about to die and you're like, okay, now let's wake up Jesus. Let's get him involved in this thing. That feels like the right step to take, you know? So maybe it was, like, the panic that on their faces as they woke him up. Like, I'm not sure what it was. But here's, here's what's clear in this whole thing. Before they woke Jesus up, before Jesus acted in this whole thing, the disciples did not feel safe in the presence of Jesus in the midst of the storm. They did not feel safe. They, they were certain. The fear was big. They were certain um, that they were going to uh, be swept away or whatever. Jesus comes, speaks a few words, and suddenly everything's calm. Everything's saved. Everything is fine. The biggest takeaway I have from this, young John in this boat, dealing with all this fear and everything else, my biggest takeaway from this is simply this. With Jesus, every fear is irrational, okay? If you're in a boat and there's a massive storm and the boat is filling with water, a uh, a fear of drowning is rational. It's logical, right? But when Jesus is in the boat, I'm telling you that no matter what the fear is, the fear is irrational. And so what are you thinking of? What's in your mind of, um, of what you're like afraid of? Like I'm telling you that like whatever fear you have with Jesus present, it is irrational, uh, my girls are, are getting pretty old now. They're 11 and 13, um, and so this is something we would do when they were much younger. But when they were a lot littler, we'd get them on a step, two steps, three steps, and they would jump to dad, you know? And I would, I would catch them. It was a blast. Like, entertainment was cheaper back then, I guess. And, um, but they would, they would get, like, a couple steps up, right? And they would jump to me, and there'd be, like, this fear of, like, um, oh, like maybe dad's not going to catch me, which is irrational. I mean, look at me, you know? Like, of course I'm going to catch them. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but you just picture, like, how cute, oh, she's afraid that I'm not going to be able to catch her, like, you know, 30-pound body or whatever as she, like, jumps. Um, 
it's silly to be afraid in a situation like that. I'm just, I'm, what we have to step back and see is for the disciples, literally on the brink of death, fear, fear of, of the storm, fear of what's going to happen. It's not any less irrational. It is not any more rational because Jesus is there with them. Now, our fears, what are we afraid of in our lives? Um, a lot of things probably come to mind. There's fear of death, certainly, right? There's fear of failure. Uh, maybe I think a lot of us live with a, a pretty strong fear of failing. A lot of us live with a pretty strong fear of being alone uh, in life. We're afraid maybe of going without the things that we need. We might be afraid of not being accepted by God. That's a real thing. Um, we might be afraid of, of being considered unsuccessful or being considered mediocre by people that we care about or by our peers or by society or whatever else. All these fears come. And there's reasons why all these fears are real. And they, they weigh on us, right? And they shape who we are. They shape the way that we think. They shape the way that we interact. They, they mess with us medically, right? The fears just like churn in us. And it, and it makes us into different kinds of people. But when we look at a situation like this, I just want us to see, I need us to see that any fear that we have, everything that we're holding on to, everything that we're so afraid of, we're invited in the, in, the, in the face of the resurrected Jesus to see every one of those things is irrational. Every one of those things can be let go of because Jesus is alive and he loves us and he's here with us. Now, look at, uh, look at how this little story ends before we move into old John. Um, it says in verse 25, uh, they were afraid. So this is after Jesus calmed the storm. They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? It's amazing to me that at the end of the story, they're still afraid, but now they're afraid of Jesus, right? The storm was there. It was going to kill them. And now Jesus said a few words and everything's calm. He's like, guys, where's your faith? And they're just like, now they're amazed. Now they're terrified. They're afraid of Jesus because they're like, who is this person? I'm tempted to look at young John and be like, hey, John, don't be afraid. What's the solution? You should be braver, right? You should have more courage, young John, and, um, and just like stand on your own two feet and just be like, this is okay. We will be fine. But old John that we're going to go to now, we're going to see he retains the proper fear of Jesus, but there's something else that changes in between there. This resurrection of Jesus and his ongoing relationship with Jesus after he comes back from the dead fundamentally changes the way that John sees all of these things with who Jesus is and his interaction with fear. Um, what is John going to say about the whole thing? This is now jumping ahead to 1 John. Now we get old John, okay? He's, he's lived a lot uh, since then. He's been discipling people. He's been, um, he's been just doing the Lord's work for a long time. And now he's speaking these words. And look at what he says here in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So John's setting the stage, and he's going to talk about fear in a second, but he starts this, setting the stage with this by saying, like, this is how we know that we, like, live with him, that we abide in him and him in us. This is what it means. This is how we know what it's like to, like, live with God and this connection to God. John's talking all about this connection to God, and, and it's this. Um, it is the spirit of God. He's given us his spirit. So, so the resurrection that we celebrate today is all about new life. It's about Jesus was dead, and then he comes back. He resurrects in new life. And Paul says that in Romans 8 that that, like, what rose Jesus from the dead? What's the power that raised Jesus from the grave? In Romans 8, he says it's, it's the spirit of God. It's the spirit of the one that, like, gave all this power to raise Jesus from the dead. Paul also says that spirit that brought Jesus to life from the dead is at, at work in our mortal bodies. 
So us, like the, the day will come where we die just like Jesus died. And the day will come where we're put in that grave. And the day will come that we, if we're in Christ, experience that same resurrection power where we come alive again just like Jesus did. That's an amazing, powerful, life-changing truth. But Paul also says that that spirit, the power of the spirit of God is at work in our lives now, in our bodies now. He's working all around us. And John is reiterating this. This is how we know we are connected to him, that we live with him because the spirit that he has given us. And so the question is, do we see him working? John says, we've seen and we testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. John's saying, I saw it, I was there with him, and I know this is what's happening. The spirit of God is working. God sent Jesus into this world to save the world. Karen Jobes, in commenting on this, talks about how uh, she says basically what the argument is, is that the spirit of God is here, is sent to us to remind us that Jesus is alive, that Jesus came for us and to assure us that we're loved. Not in a conceptual way, not not in a way that we just kind of tuck it into our brains, but in a real, tangible way. Jesus came and was with us and showed us what real love is. And the spirit reminds us of that. The spirit that God gives us speaks to us um, over and over and over again, reminds us that we belong to him, that we are loved, that he, uh, we, we are his. Um, it doesn't mean that we're certain all the time. It doesn't mean that we walk around being like, I never have any doubts in my life or my faith ever. But it means that there's this truth that we can never quite move past, a, a truth that haunts us maybe, um, but in a really beautiful kind of a way. And so this is the spirit like, that reminds us the resurrected Jesus is with us still. And so what does John call us to do? Verse 15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So when we confess the fact that Jesus is coming, what we're doing is we're affirming, we're affirming, if, if we're saying Jesus came, like God sent Jesus, what we're doing is we're affirming that there is like the God who created everything, the, the God who is like the, the authority, the sovereign ruler of everything in the universe, that God is a loving God. And he's a, such a loving God that he sent his son into the world to be with us and to die for us. So when we affirm this, what we're doing is we're affirming, okay, love is at the center of the universe. This loving God is at the center of it all. And this loving God, his major act in all all of history was to come and to, to be with us and to show his love by dying for us, to, to gather us, to collect us. What we're doing is we're saying, we affirm that God sent Jesus to be the savior of the, word, of the world. We're, we're affirming that this world is a place with love at the center, with a God who is reaching out for us, pursuing us, loving us, and, and doing everything that he has to do to bring us to him. So if we believe that, if we believe that that's what the world is like, if we believe that that's at the core of all reality, then the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what then am I afraid of? If the core of all reality is that there's a God that loves me and is pulling me to himself, then why am I afraid of all these other things? In Romans 8, once again, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying, if God already gave Jesus to show his love for us, what else is he going to withhold from us that we need? So our fears become irrational uh, in light of who God truly is. Now, John's going to go on, um, and so he's talking about how we're connected to God, but here's what he goes on to talk about. We're connected to this God, and this God is love. So look at verses 16 and 17. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. 
when you think about God, John, John, John uh, lived with Jesus on this earth, and then he lived a lot of years after Jesus was back with the Father. And John's telling us what God is like. When you think in your mind, what is God like? Do you picture a disapproving father? Do you picture a judge? Do you picture a wrathful God? Um, the, the, the idea of, of a God who is our father, certainly. God who is a judge. God who has wrath. Even they're very, very biblical, and we have to take those things seriously. But here, John is balancing this. There's this juxtaposition. There's this tension. And John's saying this. If you want to know what God is like, he uses the actual phrase, God is love. Do you want to know what God is actually like? When you picture who God is, do you want to know what he's like? John's telling us, picture this. God is love. And that love that is God is a love that loves us, right? And it's a love that lives with us. And it's a love that we get to live with. So when we live in God, we're living in love. When we're living in love, we're living in God. John is saying all of these things. And he says in verse 17, by this is love perfected with us. He's talking about the love of God, not just existing and coming at us from the outside, but this love sinking down into us and beginning to transform, beginning to take root in who we are, and beginning to make us something um, that we never were before. And so the question, um, the question I want to ask as we, as we kind of look at this reality of love, and we've been talking about the concept of fear, um, the, the, the old Jewish philosopher, so there's an old Jewish philosopher like in 20 BC is when he was born uh, named Philo. And um, so he poses this question. He says, um, should fear or love play the leading role in religion? Okay, very good question. Fear or love? When you think of religion and what's the basis and what's the core of religion, is it fear or is it love? And he asked that 2,000 years ago. That question's been asked by every philosopher, theologian ever since. It just is this wrestle that we keep coming back to. Fear or love? Which is it? Which is it? And John is talking here um, a lot about the love of God. Martin Luther says this. Um, he's talking about the judgment day. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he says, If consciousness of a great sin weighs you down, Comfort yourself with this blood of love. No human religion can hold its own in the face of the judgment, but it is solely in the blood of Christ that we have confidence on the day of judgment. So what Martin Luther is saying is he says, when you think even of judgment, that's the time that we think of fear, right? When we think of ju the judgment day, we think like the fear of a God who is our judge. He's saying like, yeah, if you're coming into it with your religion, with your, your good acts, your, your righteous living, like I'm a good person, I'm going to live this way. He's saying, if you're coming into it with that, give up, right? You can't face the judgment like that. But if you are looking at the blood of Jesus' love, the love, the, the love that Jesus had, the blood that he spilled because of that love, if you're looking at that, then you can have, he says, confidence in the day of judgment. So when we ask, could fear or love play the, the center of it? I think John would say, absolutely, fear is not the answer. I don't think John stopped fearing Jesus. I don't think he stopped fearing who God is, but I think that that fear became enveloped in this bigger ecosystem of love that God is creating. Fear still exists because he's the judge and he's transcendent and all these things are super appropriate, but all around that, God has been building this big picture of there is this love. God is love. I, like he's telling us, I am love and I love you. And so that whole thing overwhelms the fear we have. It has its proper place, but it gets wiped out. So here's what John goes on to say in verse 18. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, the, the cure for fear, and when we're looking back, think of John in the boat, he's terrified that he's going to die and everything else, and they're in that spot. 
and they're terrified. What's the cure for that fear that they have? It's not be braver, and it's not figure things out. I think what he would say here is love is the answer to fear. Perfect love is what casts out all of the fear that we have. You can picture it this way. Um, There's a certain fearlessness that Michael Jordan had when he went out onto the basketball court. Um, For those of you that aren't familiar with Michael Jordan, he's the best basketball player that's ever lived. And uh, why are we laughing? Come on, why are you guys laughing? It's not even a joke. Um, (laughs) So Michael Jordan would go out and just famously, well, I guess in his Bulls years, I think we should probably clarify, but he would go out on the court and he was absolutely fearless. He was not afraid of anything or anyone because he knew that all he had to do was play a certain way and he could win any game that he was in. Um, almost, you know? And, um, and so he went out. And so there's that fearlessness that comes from being Michael Jordan and know that you're going to win this game, right? But contrast that with a different kind of fearlessness. Uh, because I don't think we, I don't think that's a good basis for us to be fearless. Because ultimately, it breaks down for all of us. But there's a fearlessness in knowing that your identity is not connected to your success, Right? There's a fearlessness with knowing that the game isn't yours to win anyways, that there's, no, there's nothing at stake in you winning the game. There's, like, it's not on your shoulders. Like, you're accepted, and you can still find life. There's a fearlessness that comes when you know that like, it is not about my performance here. It's not about me working hard enough. It's not about me getting it together. There's a fearlessness that comes from the fact that the game has already been won. And, and of course, I'm talking about like, the life. And G- Jesus dying for us and rising from the dead. The, Jesus' resurrection shows us that when Jesus offered his life as a sacrifice for our sins, when he came back to life again, it shows us, it's the receipt that shows us that that sacrifice was accepted, that God was pleased with what Jesus did and that we are accepted before God. And he came to offer us life, to bring us into God. And so he is alive and he is living in us. And so the fearlessness we have is not that we've uh, finally gotten to a place where we can live with enough boldness or enough goodness or enough confidence to make things work. The fearlessness that we have is in knowing I'm connected to Jesus, and that's all it's ever been about. Every one of our fears is so irrational we look at it this way. I, I, I think it'd be fun to kind of go around and ask, uh, what's your most irrational fear? Um, wouldn't you guys love to know that about each other? What's your like, most irrational fear? I'll, I'll start. Mine is um, spiders and bugs, like of all kinds. I just can't, you know? When, when we, um, we like, closed down the church for a while with all the COVID stuff, and we did backyard churches and stuff like that, and it was, it was lovely in some ways, but the building was sitting here empty, and in addition to being like a rollerblading he- heaven for my girls, um, it was uh, taken over by nature again. So our youth director had to, had to catch a bat and get him out of the building. I had to catch a spider, and I won't tell you. I'm sorry, I didn't have to catch a spider. I had to catch a snake, which was better than catching a spider. I can't step on a spider without, like, cringing and shaking and having to, like, do a little dance afterwards. They're just... <laughs> so so this, this one time uh, when my girls were really little, like, like really, really little, there was a moth in our house, okay? And it's like... Um, I'm not the kind of husband that's going to make my wife deal with this moth. And I'm like, okay, I will, I will handle this plague on our house, and I'll take care of this thing. <laughs> and the moth, like, flew up above the TV, like, ceiling, wall, TV. It was up there. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. Girls, get up back on the couch. Dad's got this. This is going to be fine. And so I got, like, ten paper towels. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I just... Boom, I got it, you know, real fast, right? But then that thing, I missed, I guess. And he flew out and around, and he hit me on the hand, you guys. The, the wing of that moth just got me, and I screamed in a way that terrified the girls. Like, I don't think they've ever been scared in my life. It's so stupid because I know, like, I could take a moth, you know? Like, I know that. In my head, I know that. But, but, but in the moment, it's like, oh, my gosh. And I'm just, 
It's so insane, right? But, but I, what I'm telling us is, and this is the truth of it is, that, that like the fear, like Paul, John's saying, the fear of punishment that we have, the fear that it's not going to work out in the end if we're in Christ, he's saying it's, it's, it's more irrational even than that, right? There's, there's no fear in love. Like perfect love, the love that we receive from God, casts out all fear. So all the fear that we have should be gone. It's irrational. It doesn't belong with us. And so we have to believe and see the love that he has, and that gets rid of our fear of punishment. And I think it's exactly the same with our fear of failure, with our fear of abandonment, with our fear of relationships not working out, our fear of being alone, our fear, our fear of not being successful. Like whatever our fear is, all of these things become ultra irrational in the face that there is Jesus who is there and Jesus who loves us. Jesus who died for us and Jesus who is alive again and loves us still, pursues us still, comes for us still. This is the truth that if we could just believe this and if we could get it into our bones and let it sink down deeper and deeper into who we are, then we begin to see, man, like life is a different thing in the love of God and it changes all of our fears. It should change all of our fears. That is the invitation for us. The love that God has for us is not sentimental. It's a love that at the center of it all that came and, and put everything on the line, everything at stake to see us, to live with us, to see us in our pain and our suffering, see us at our very worst. Um, uh, Romans 5.8, uh, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came in, in the, when we were all at our worst and he still died for us and that love comes to us. Now, Karen Jobes commenting on this says, she asked the question, she says, look, this is all about the love of God. We have to ask, how can God be loving with all of these terrible things that are still happening to me? And I think that's a really important question because when we say, we talk about God loves us, God loves us, God loves us, well, there's evidence sometimes to the contrary, isn't there? There's things that we can point at in our lives and be like, okay, yes, I, I believe he loves me, but what about this? What about this? What about this diagnosis? What about the shooting that happened in our community this week? I mean, this is crazy. This, these things happen. How is God loving when this happens? What about the national shootings that we had last week and the week before that and every other week before that? Like these things that keep happening, we pray, God, please act. Please show your love, show your grace. And he doesn't stop every bullet. He doesn't stop every shooting. He doesn't stop every diagnosis. He doesn't stop every relationship from falling apart. So the things that we pray for and we plead with him for, we still find there's death in this world. There's brokenness. And so Karen Job's answer to this, um, maybe it helps you, maybe it doesn't. But her answer to this is simply this. She says, what Jesus ultimately gives us in his love is a freedom from death. I, I, think, I think so often our fear is like death itself, right? We're so afraid of death itself or we're afraid of these like little deaths along the way, right? The death of our reputation, the death of my career, the death of this relationship. So all these deaths and what Jesus has done is given us freedom from death. Death still is going to get all of us in the end. It really is going to get all of us in the end. But what Jesus has done is he's made it so that death is not the last word. He takes the sting out of death. He takes the power out of death. And because death has been rendered powerless, what's on the other side of death is more life. We experience life in Jesus now, and then we die. And what's waiting for us on the other side of that? More life, abundant life, eternal life, like life like we've never experienced it before. And so the invitation is to see, okay, yes, there's that one big death that's coming, but there's still life on the other side of that. And there's all these little deaths that we encounter on the way, whether it's like being ripped out of our context, ripped out of our friend group, ripped out of a relationship, ripped out of our job situation, like whatever we lose is like a little death. But on the other side of that, because Jesus is alive, there is more life for us to experience in that. And so what is the fear that we have of this big death or these little deaths 
it becomes irrational and we can see, man, Jesus is bigger than all that. We are so driven by fear. We are so weighed down by fear. We're so controlled and manipulated by the fears that we have. And John is just telling us that you are loved so deeply and completely. Let your grip loose on these things. Stop being driven by fear. Let yourself be transformed by love. So John, old John, at the end of his life, invites us to be transformed by love. Here's where we end. It says in verse 19, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, has not seen, um, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. At the center of it all is a love that is being poured into us. We love because we first loved us. I think we're right to, to ask the question, like, God, why, if you're a loving God, why is there evil in the world? That's a good question to ask. It's a valid question to ask. But we also have to ask the question, okay, um, why is there good in this world? Right? Why is there love in this world? Why is there beauty in this world? It exists because, like, it's saying we love because God first loved us. There's a God who is the source of love, who is the source of life, who is the source of beauty, who's the source of goodness. And that God just keeps pouring himself into us. And that love just keeps overflowing from us and filling the lives of everybody around us. There's this God that's powerful enough to create and sustain the entire universe. And that God loves me. Loves me completely, loves me in all my faults and all my flaws and invites me to experience that love and to be transformed by it, to let it flow out into the life that, of everything that is around me. God is love, John says. So how could that love not change everything? Not change everything in me and not change everything around me. How could it not? How could it not be our greatest source of life, our greatest pursuit in this whole life? And so John encourages us, look at our neighbors around us. And if we want to see God's love being uh, perfected in us, look at the people around you. John, John Calvin said it like this. He said, It is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God, but neglects God's image, which is before his eyes. Meaning that when you look at the people around you, these are all people that are made in God's image, that bear God's image. If you're not loving the image of God that's all around you, he's saying, are you really loving God? It's, it's, the way it works is the love of God through the Spirit of God comes into our hearts, transforms us, and just overflows floods to everyone around us, and it has this massive impact on everything, um, on us and on everyone around us. I read, I read this week this uh, article. Yesterday, actually, I read this article from Esau Macaulay, who's a theologian and a pastor. He says, um, it, the article's about hope. He says, I've never been a big fan of hope. Ridiculous statement. I'm, I'm way too optimistic to ever utter anything like this, but I'm trying to give you guys some representation of people that are less optimistic than me. He says, I've never been a big fan of hope. It is a demanding emotion that insists on changing you. Hope pulls you out of yourself and into the world, forcing you to believe more is possible. Hate is a much less insistent master. It asks you only to loathe. It is quite happy to have you to itself and doesn't ask you to go anywhere. I think that is such a powerful way to say it. If all we're doing is, is hating the people around us, right? Stick to yourself. All you got to do is just sit there and that hate can just foment in you and man, you can just, you can just stew in it. Um, 
But hope, he says on the other hand, hope requires you to step back into the world. It, it, he, he wrote um, uh, something else I read from me, some Macaulay. He talked about how um, when, the, when the women came to the tomb and they found Jesus resurrected, they were called then to go back to the same world that had crucified Jesus and tell them the good news, to bring hope to those people. I mean, it's a crazy thing the way hope like, invites us out of ourselves into something bigger, something that we, we were afraid to dream might be possible, right? But we speak into that. And I would just say that what Esau Macaulay says about hope is only more true about love. Love changes us. Love demands so much of us. But it's something that if we are truly loved deeply on the inside, it changes us. It, it makes us different people when we see God's love. And I'm just telling you that like every day of your life, God's love has been poured down on you. Just think of the sun shining. Like every day of your life, that sun just keeps coming down, coming down, coming down. And God's love is just like that coming down on you. God's love is also like the rain that comes down on us and it just constantly is there. And the, the key is, man, let it change us. Let, us. let us see the love of a God who would die for us and who would, who would rise again and offer that life that he has to us. And so the question, as we close this, we're going to sing a couple more songs and worship. The question I have for you on this Resurrection Sunday is, um, what are you afraid of, first of all? Ask that to yourself one more time, and then ask yourself, how has the love of God changed you? How does the love of God speak to those fears? How does it reframe the whole thing? How does it envelop you in this ecosystem of knowing that God is on your side and that God has laid his life down for you, that he lives and, and will continue to change you and the world around you? Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you so much that you are a God of love. Thank you that you are a God who sees us as we are and you love us despite our flaws, despite our inconsistencies, despite our fears. Lord, thank you so much that you are here with us right now. Lord, Easter is such a, a joyful day and it's a time to celebrate. Lord, I pray that as we do that celebration that you would speak into the fears that we have um, represented in this room, in this space. Lord, would you speak into our fears? Would you speak into the things that are holding us back, the things that are weighing us down? And Lord, would you take the life that, that you have on this deep level, this deeply rooted love that you have for us, Lord, may it, may it be our foundation. May it be the seed that grows in us. May it be the thing that flows out to the world around us. Lord, may we see and understand and believe the love that you have and be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.